You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Chapter 2, verse 2 through 15. A little parental warning here. We have some adult language, so parents, you should have some interesting conversations today. Hosea 2, starting in verse 2. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face, and her adultery adultery from between her breasts, lest I stripped her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst." Upon her children also I have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. And I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she, buried off, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry." And went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out, of the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. You can now have a seat and the kids can be dismissed to their class. Good morning. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Uh, Rick promised that this would be riveting, so (laughs) I want to give that a shot. Uh, It's, it is a joy uh, to spend these mornings with you, and I hope that's true for you, and, and I know that for some who aren't familiar with these people or this God that we read about, um, don't know what it looks like to walk with Jesus and all those things, but like we, we do care for you, and, and no matter where you find yourself in this room, I am humbled to be in this room with you all. Uh, would you pray with me and then we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens, right? We'll do the best that we can. God, thanks for the gift of, of gathering and sitting under your word and, and, and raising eyebrows and shrugging shoulders and, and not knowing exactly what all is here. And, and God, you know that I am incapable of um, bringing 
clarity to tough things on my own, but you, you also know that, that you have made yourself known and, and knowable. And so we together can, can get to know you even through a seemingly bizarre passage like this and, and through a, a book, uh, through Hosea, that just has so many just bizarre things. And yet, it is our pursuit to know you and it is our pursuit to know your love for us. And it's our pursuit to know, um, to, to let you know that, that we love you. And so today, would you show us where we have separated ourselves from you? And would you show us that, that even when we turn, you pursue us. We need you. We love you. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Homiletics. That's a word. It is the art of writing sermons, right? And my guess is I've read more books about that than you have, right? And that's not true for everybody, but um, that is to say there are books about how people preach and how uh, people persuade. And, and, and there are many important components of an effective sermon. And there's a thousand I need to's. Every time I stand up here in the week leading up to, a, a thousand, like I, it has to be and all these things, and there's, you know, 10,000 I should haves. The moment when I walk off of the stage and Monday morning when we talk about stuff as staff and kick stuff around and, and I talk to my other pastor friends who, you know, maybe like, like are, you, are you still doing this? Like, you, you okay? That's literally my life every week, right? Um, a sermon is a persuasive speech. Like, I'm not up here just chatting. Like, I'm, I'm trying to take us somewhere. And, and, and it must be biblically contoured. It must, like, like, my words are just like an overlay of the words that are here. Like, that's what I'm, I'm trying to get across. And it will be Christ-centered. He will be proclaimed as the hero of the story, no matter what the content is. And, and the gospel will confront. And the gospel, the work of Jesus will conform it will comfort. We get to look at then, and we get to see what is going on here in this context, and then we get to bring it to now, and we say, what does this look like for us, and what's true about God, and what's true about human nature, and so those are some of the things that we're trying to do every week, and then there's an appeal, because we know that some of you are more theologically educated than I am, and some of you don't even know what the word theology means, and that's okay, and so there's a lot of people in this room, and, and so there's a lot of aims, but, but one of the things is, is I'm trying to get it right first, so I don't start with you all, I start with what's here. Then I want to make it clear, and then, and then I, I want to bring it to bear. Getting it right is about understanding the original content and context. And again, some weird stuff that we have to kind of step over and work through today. And then the clarity piece is the artistic piece. Like, this is not a science. And some would prefer a preacher that preached a certain way. And, and some would prefer a preacher that preached another way. And I'm going somewhere with this. This is not all about me and preaching today, right? You're like, wow, this is like a really interesting... Uh, so, so getting it right is the first thing, but then clarity is the artistic piece. And that's like the, the structure and the form and like what, what are the, the handles that help us kind of navigate the text and, and what are the, the creative ways that this comes to bear. And then the bearing, like bringing it to bear is the pastoral piece. That is like, so what? That is the, so what change comes into my life because of all of these things being true? It's the transformative piece. It's, it's all those things. And so all those things should help us hear better. But this, this clarity piece, right, is declare it, like say it. Declare it in some way and then, then explain it and then, then show it. That's what, that's what we get to do. That's what I get to do. And and the primary tool in the preacher's tool belt to show is illustration. And sometimes it's really tough. And just on a personal note, when I'm in a funk that I've been preaching week after week after week, this is always the part that's toughest for me. And I'll probably get it right, and I might make it clear, but it might be really boring, right? Like, wow, he's just being so vulnerable, because I've felt that, right? I felt that he's really boring sometimes. <clears throat> so, so for me, I may use quotes or, or song lyrics or pop, 
you know, pop culture connections or, or maybe a metaphor or a comparison to kind of gain some understanding and uh, maybe a story of how the truth shapes me or someone around me or, you know, someone I read about. Jesus used parables of farming and the world around him to kind of bring spiritual truths to light right in front of him. Paul used lots of examples, and he was probably on the boring side. He just, like, declared a lot, but then he would be like, hey, be like that person and don't be like that person. And the people were like, oh, okay, like, that's simple enough. And so there's a lot of stuff in there. The Old Testament prophets, though, they did some flat, crazy stuff to get their point across. Like, their illustrations were not like, you know, uh, movie references. Like, they, they were crazy, what, some of the stuff that they did. And it was often to show these rich truths about God and about their relationship with him to these often stiff-necked people. Some weird things, this is just a few. Isaiah walked around naked, prophesying. And, and Jeremiah, he... He hid his underwear under a rock. Like God told him, like, go buy some new underwear. And he puts his underwear on and then he hides it in some rocks next to the Euphrates. And, and like God's doing this like on purpose. And it's like, what is happening? And, and Jonah, he's running from God. He ended up in the belly of a, of a great fish for three days. And the fish spit him out. And, and Ezekiel, he, he ate a scroll. Like, could you imagine today me being like, uh, and then just eating that? He did that. And then, uh, and then he, he laid on one side for 390 days to, to demonstrate the weight of sin on him. He cooked his food over a fire of manure. Did some weird stuff. Balaam rode a talking donkey. It's like weird stuff in, in Hosea in the mid-8th century B.C., Mary's a prostitute because God told him, told him to. And, and he names his children really weird names that mean terrible things. And he did that so that we might feel, not just words spoken, so that he might show us the nature of our relationship to God. And so in context, I shared this last week just to kind of catch us up. What's going on here, this was the political context in which God called Hosea as a prophet. A time of prosperity that had led to spiritual complacency. A time of spiritual complacency, that is they were just kind of numb and just going along that had led them to spiritual infidelity or, or adultery. So Hosea is using many metaphors, but this one is the most striking. God is demonstrating the depth of love that he has for his people and the depth of rejection God endures under the covenant with his people. And so there's God being married to this bride, Israel, and, and at every turn God is faithful, and at every turn they're bailing against the covenant that they had with him. And look, it's one thing to say that, it's one thing to say, even for me today, hey, like, like uh, we're, we're just a rebellious group of people. But it's another thing to, to see that in the illustration sh God is showing us vividly through this life of Hosea. So we get to think about it and we get to feel the weight of it. We, we've seen that God is bringing judgment, but, but even that harsh judgment that Israel, his people, will be wiped off of the map, but, but there's also hope. And, and God's promise and his people will endure. And the theme continues, and we see again today this divine pursuit that even when his bride turns, God pursues her. And the setup here in this passage is a plead. And it, and it sounds like this, Hosea 2, starting in 2. Plead with your mother, Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she may put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a, a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. And again, this is kind of set up from what we talked about last week, and so there's some context to settle into. Uh, read chapter 1. 
sometime this week, but, but he says, you go, it's a plea, you go and tell your mother. So, so the you here is like the individual who's part of God's people. And so for us, they're, they're, that would be like saying, you go tell y'all about me. And so he says, you go tell your mother to stop living this way, lest she, that is like Israel all together, or God's people kind of all together, receive her reward from rebellion against me and my ways. So God is giving a warning that Israel will get what her rebellion has earned her, and that is separation from the God who loves her. That's, that's what's happening. And so we'll see this kind of chunked out in three ways, and the first one is this. The rebel bride pursues other lovers. Verse 5, 6, and 7. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink and all that stuff. I'll talk about that in a second. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but she will not find them. Uh, as Rick pointed out to me earlier, th there are a lot of she shalls. And so it's like kind of a, a difficult, even just to read this a little bit, some tongue twisters in there, right? Um, what's happening here is, is the, you know, movies that tell of like a love story, like can probably think of 10,000 because that's all the movies are about, I think. And, and there's like a time-lapse montage of like the couple getting together and it starts with happy scenes and they're probably like at a Waffle House at 2 a.m. like laughing and putting whipped cream on, you know, their nose and whatever, right? Um, and it's like good stuff, right? And, and then like they're at a park and they're walking a the dog, like, okay, like, and then it's like music playing and it's probably like uh, a, a good vibe, but then like you see, you kind of feel things take a shift and then, then those happy scenes that kind of fade and, and he comes home and she's like, won't look at him because she's like looking at her phone and like, he's like, what is it? You know, like, and, and then like you kind of see these subtle things and then you see them at, a, at another place and there's like an argument and like, but again, you don't know what they're saying because it's just a song, right? <laughs> and so months are going by or whatever, and, but it's like you can feel that and then, then you can see it kind of get, get worse and, and, and there's a heated argument and, and probably slow motion, so, you know, like he just punches a wall, you know, whatever. Like you can feel that. And then, and then you see someone gazing at a photo, the, the guy gazing at a photo, and, and you see her in her station wagon with the luggage stacked on top of it, and she drives off. And like, you know, she like fades away from the photos that are on the, the mantle, like Marty McFly and Back to the Future. You can see that, right? You can imagine that. And as the song kind of comes to an end, there's tear-filled tear -filled eyes and empty arms as the love of his youth drives off into the arms of another. That's the picture. And it's powerful because we can, like, say, I can totally understand that. And I can totally relate, maybe personally or maybe by someone that you know, but, but this is a hard breakup. That's, that's the point. That's what's going on here. It's a hard breakup that's leading towards divorce, and that's, that's even more troubling. God and his people, the one committed to God, they have abandoned him for another. And Hosea tells us, and he shows us. So he, he's using words and, and imagery, what we may not know, and that's when we follow our heart and forsake God, it's clutching at the wind. It's just, it's, it's, it's being able to, to grasp satisfaction that you can never hold. And that's what, that's what God tells us cover to cover in this book. And that's what he tells us about our relationship with him. Just last week, I got another message from another pastor friend, uh, no one that's a part of this church, but... And it, and it said, hey, pray for me dealing with another adultery situation in my church. A deacon, longtime member, my words, not his, rebelling against his Lord and his wife. Because that's exactly what was happening. 
And so I've gotten similar texts many, many times and navigate that in, in all the spheres of life. And, and the reality is that that didn't happen on a whim. And, and, and th- that didn't happen just like, oh, like I think I'll uh, abandon my family today. That's not what happened, but, but it happens through a process. And just kind of experientially, there's a typical but not always kind of pattern showing us what that looks like, right? And the, the first thing is this, that there is dissatisfaction and, and disillusionment. And I think, Andy, I think there, yeah. So that, that's all of them, all right? For you note takers, like, <laughs> that's the next 30 minutes right there. So <laughs> settle in. Uh, this... Yeah, it is. It is riveting. Thanks for that. I did that. That's I I I put them on there for you, right? So, but now you gotta listen. Write them down, then you gotta listen. So, dissatisfied and disillusioned, like like it would look like this in a relationship. Like this is not what I signed up for. Like it was easy, and things were good, and you were kind. This is this is not what I signed up for. This is not who I thought you were. My, my feelings aren't what they were. I'm just, I just don't love you like I did, right? And so you have these thoughts, and it's, and it's, it's these ideals crumble. It happens in every relationship, every one, all, all kinds of relationships. This same truth happens, but, but the ideals, whatever you thought, that, that you know that this is hard and, and marriage or whatever, but not know, but me and, and like we're like different. And it's going to be, it's, it's, it's not. And so when you begin to be dissatisfied and you say, gosh, like uh, this is not what I, I thought it was. Like we can see that easily in marriage, but maybe less in our relationship with God. And so for each of these, certainly in a, a relationship of many types, but, but a marriage in, and certainly with our relationship with Jesus when I committed to follow Jesus, I thought that, that all the tough things in my life would be gone. And I thought, like, hashtag blessed would be my story until the end of my life. I'd say two reasons why you thought that. One, because, gosh, if, if he is actually the one that we read about and, and the one that we sing about, and like this sounds too good to be true, and yet they're telling me it's true. And so we build a reality that looks a whole lot more like ourself and not God. But the other side is, is the church historically maybe doesn't set you up really well. And they might say, if you like just say this prayer or just like show up at this thing or just like let's dunking booth you in some water, right? And we can celebrate that. But I remember there was a time in, in a season in, in the life of this church, and maybe I'm like somewhere, I, I remember spending my time like trying to convince people like not to follow Jesus. And I, like that sounds terrible. I wasn't convincing them not to follow Jesus. I was, I was trying to convince them that, that, that they had to know what they were signing up for. And it's not just, hey, just come, oh yeah, like we'll baptize you and we'll, like it's, it's not that, but it's like, it's, well, it's what Jesus did. He said, this is hard. Count the cost beforehand. Like, don't be like the builder who starts the building but doesn't finish it. Like, to follow me, you have to give up your life. And the church says, like, oh, grace is full. And, like, oh, just follow Jesus. Like, as if you can just tag him into your life. And he's like a slice of, of, of the pie of, of your time. That's not a category for being in Christ. So, so we're not set up well, maybe. For that. The second thing is justification. Again, in uh, a marriage relationship, because we're dissatisfied, because our illusions are crumbled, you know, one begins to justify. And, and, and we justify feelings that could lead to departure or separation or divorce or forsaking or, or adultery. We begin to like have thoughts that, that come into play like, I deserve better. And we begin to have thoughts like it, it shouldn't be this hard. It doesn't have to. And, and again, in all the years of Kim and I interacting with people sitting in living rooms and, and with, with a, a couple on the other side of the couch, so many times, it's like it just shouldn't be this hard. And in some relationships where they're not married, we say, well, like maybe it doesn't have to be. 
in situations where they are married, we say, well, but it is, <laughs> and here we are, so what are we going to do about it? So, so there's this like human uh, trick, like that, that like what's a reasonable amount to go over the speed limit? Five, seven, but not in the school zone, because that's stupid, can't do that. <laughs> And, and maybe it's like, well, the faster the speed limit, then like the more you could like, okay, Mike's like, yeah. So you can go 82 in a 70, but you can't go 32 in a 20, right? <laughs> but, but you have those things, and then you have like, you have those like, yeah, but, but then when you wake up late for your first day at work, like all that just out the window. Like you're just zipping. It don't even matter. Like you, the speed limit is as fast as your car will go. And that's like just really common and basic. And you do that in every sphere of your life. That that's unacceptable and there's no way. Well, I mean, well, okay, in that. Well, yeah, but I won't. Well, I wouldn't. That's justification. And I couldn't imagine my life without them. And yet here I am imagining my life without them. Now, that's easy to see in uh, a marriage relationship. If God is good and he loves me, then why is my life hard? I, I could drift from him, and, and if it's going to be hard anyway, then, then why not, what if I just did what I want? I've never gotten to do that. What if I just like, what if I live for me for a little while? What if I have a little fun at the expense of obedience? Like, what's the harm in that? Well, that justification is the root of the way sin shows up. It's the root of the first sin that showed up. And it's Adam and Eve, and God said, hey, it's all yours. Love it and live in it. Us, together. Like, just go rule and, and govern this beautiful creation, but don't eat that. And they said, got it. I won't eat that. And the serpent comes and says, yeah, but you could eat that. And he's like, well, yeah, we, but we can't. Like, and she's like, because if we eat of it, we'll die. And the serpent said, well, will, will you surely die? And she's like, will we surely die? Huh. It does look good. I'll give you that. It's the same thing. It's the same pattern. Bridge building That is self-justification, when it begins to grow, leads to a plan or a path out. And usually it looks like getting shared friends or those close to you to flirt with the idea of separation. Just flirt with it. And so whenever we're with them and we're not with our spouse, we talk negatively and we try to get them to like, we, we might embellish how difficult that that is. We might embellish the difficulty of, of the relationship and like, no, he just, he, he's always working and he comes home late and you know what he does and he works and like, oh gosh, that is, yeah, honey, you don't need that. You need someone who's going to come home, at, right? That's what we're doing. We're, we're justifying ourselves and then we try to get others on board. That's what bridge building is. It's building a bridge to get out of our situation. We're getting others on board, and it, and it just aims to justify departure. So, so similarly in Christian community, what would it mean for... Somebody asked me, as, as they were like struggling with their faith some time ago, like, if I didn't follow Jesus, what would it mean for me in this community? It was like... It was, it was bridge building, but it was, I, I was empathetic towards the question. Because it's like, oh man, so you're wanting to forsake the Lord, but you know that that would have an impact on your social sphere. That's tough. And maybe it's the flip of that. Maybe it's you want to forsake this community and yet you want to continue to walk with the Lord and that, or, or church community in general. And like, you get that. 
Like I, I totally get how those things happen. But it's, but it's after we're convinced uh, and after we get others on, on board, what, what would it mean for me to, to kind of, so we, so we flirt with the idea and, and, and it begins to deconstruct, right? Which we kind of know what that, there's a lot of people pulling threads of deconstruction of their faith. And like, this is what I would say about that. In short, like, there are lots of things about our faith that needs to be deconstructed. There are lots of threads that need to be pulled to expose false stuff and, and difficult stuff and, and, and uh, hypocrisy within the church and inconsistency and, and hurts and confusion and, and from the church or what you believe to be true about God. I do that. I look on what I believed when I became a Christian when I was 14 or what I was teaching when I was 24 and I think, oh my gosh, I hope that no one remembers that I ever said those words. We get to do that. We get to deconstruct, but but we're, we're chiseling away to a core, and we have to make sure that we're not th- throwing our, our bride out with the bathwater. And, and what makes this so difficult, the, the result of, of that is, is God says, and I will build a wall against her. So we can like get to the essence of who God is and what his people ought to be like. But the reality that what makes this so difficult is, is that it's a perfect God alongside broken people. And that just messes stuff up. That's really difficult. And so we have departure. We, have, we, we are dissatisfied. We justify. We build bridges. And then, then we depart. And departure is, is after convinced that, that someone or something is better. And after they built the bridge, the exit strategy, the, the social buy-in, they leave. And this is complicated and it's difficult in marriage. There's lots of stuff. What do we do with the house? What about the kids? Like, and, and look, I know all that stuff is really difficult. Like in real life, Marital relationships. It's, it's broken and heartbreaking for many people in this room. But, but here's, here's the thing. It's, it's worth fighting for and it's worth fighting through and it's worth fighting against. And, and I'm not minimizing the dip, difficulty of life or relationships or marriage. And I'm not putting anyone in an unsafe or unhealthy relationship or, or, or place. But this pattern also shows up in regard to the way that we interact with God himself. This is what has happened in Hosea's day with God's people. We have a nice, safe life. Why go to the temple and worship when there are so many shows to watch. And so what happens in, in our day with, with God's people. We get bored or frustrated or dissatisfied and we, we build bridges to get out and we slip out the back door never to be seen again. And my plea to you today is to stop the departure and turn back towards a God who is there, who loves you, who will not forsake you, and who will, who will fight for you. And in community, what that looks like is first, as we process those things, and we say, this is hard. And am I slipping away? I don't see the, the things in my life that, that, I, that have once brought me joy with the Lord now become like difficult things. And so what we have to do first is grab the oxygen mask and put it on our own faces so that we might be able to help our brother and sister who are navigating these same issues and same struggles. Like you're, you're no help to anyone if you're unhealthy. And so we need to make sure that as we're reflecting and, and reading and processing all this, that, that we're not departing from the Lord. So we get to turn back. And as we do, we get to bring others along with us. The, the last thing that happens is we adore another. Now, it's entirely possible that this has been the root cause driving all this to begin with. And maybe this would be number one that magnifies all those other things. But, but someone else has caught your eye. That's clearly the context that we're talking about in, in Hosea. The, the driving force of all the other steps in, in, in this pattern is that at some point, or maybe it's at the end of this, uh, someone has captured our heart. In, in, in heart and in life, we abandon the one and we go to the arms of another. That, 
won't happen so cleanly and it won't happen so clearly, but through chaos and confusion, we get to consider this as, as, as we look at, think about what is stealing our heart, even right now. What is stirring your affections for another or for the Lord? Those who are in Christ, we get to fight against that pattern. And we don't get to say, well, that's what it is. And so God gives us this warning, this judgment prophecy. It's a warning not to be dismissed. And Israel did dismiss it. And they were wiped off the map about 30 years after this is written. So we get to say what lies and what justification and what bridge building are we already doing what am I missing in, in life that will stir my affections for one true living God once again, or maybe for the first time? See, Gomer is a picture of what we're capable of. This, this wife, we don't look at her and say, oh, how dare she? But we, we look at her and we say, that is me. Not only within personal relationships that we're drawn in the same way, but more directly with our relationship with God. Or, or maybe the hymn would say it this way. We're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So we don't sit in that. We acknowledge that, that that is us apart from God's transforming grace. And so we say, God, here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. See, we sing songs to fight tendencies that pull us away from the Lord. Point number two, probably shorter, I hope. The rebel bride takes provision for granted. Uh, let's read in verse eight. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain. She's going away. She thought it was someone else. It was I who gave her the grain. It was I who gave her the wine. It was I who gave her the oil and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. That's a, a false god. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax. Those are things that make garments. I watched a video this morning about that. Look it up. It's pretty interesting. Uh, no time for that, though. Gosh, I wish there was. And no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to her mirth, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. Things that, in some ways, God has established for his people. And they're taking those same things and they're sharing a meal with another lover. And they're trying to invite God to the table. How vivid. And I will lay waste to her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. And God's like, no, that's a lie. I will make them a forest, and the beast of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings. She, she came to temple and she worshiped other gods. Uh, adorned in, in, uh, with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. So when we see, we, we read that God is a jealous God, we see it, we feel it in this illustration that Jose has shown us. There's this uh, young girl, she said this line in a movie, uh, Willy Wonka or Charlie the End of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or whatever it is, but, but she says, uh, Daddy, I, she's like very into herself and stuff, and she says, I want, you know, an Oompa Loompa, and I want a, a golden egg. I want a golden goose. And her dad says, sure, sure, and she's very demanding. And, and he's like, fine, you know, and she says, but I want it now, Daddy, right, time and time again. She's British, and <laughs> I'm kidding. I don't even know what that means, but. I have no idea. It sounds better. That's what I'm saying. When she says it, it sounds better. And if you're British, gosh, we want you to read the focal passage next week. It would sound great. 
So she says, I want a golden goose. And he said, sure. And, and she says, but I want it now. And he says, well, how much? And uh, what's his name? Willy Wonka. That's his name? The guy. The guy that owns the whole candy shop, right? The, the candy factory. And he says, how much? And he says, it's not for sale. He says, no, but how much? He says, it's not for sale. Name your price. She can't have one. She can't have the golden goose. Willy Wonka's running the, the chocolate factory. And this, this woman who, this young girl who we invited in, she says, I want part of that. It's mine. I want it. And he says, she can't have it. And she stands on this thing and she drops into this, this thing. And, and her dad says, where did she go? And he says, uh, well, she was a bad egg. <laughs> but where did she go? <laughs> she goes where all the other bad eggs go. But, <laughs> but where did she go? Where does it lead? To the furnace. <laughs> now there's some theological implications in that. <laughs> but my point is, she's entitled. And everyone looks at that screen and says, oh my gosh, that kid drives me nuts. And we're way less inclined to look in the mirror and say, that person drives me nuts. See, entitlement says I deserve something and it's mine to take. And God says, that's not true apart from me. You have misguided prov provision. You don't know where your stuff comes from. And greed takes what isn't ours and, 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 uh, and it gains through immoral or unacceptable means. So we say, I must have more at any expense. And entitlement assumes the right to, to whatever we have and whatever we don't have. That's what uh, the heart of entitlement does. It says, no matter what it is, it's mine. Man, I listened this past week to, oh gosh, lots of stuff, but something about college admission scandal and all that stuff, and I'll probably bring that up later because it's just a lot of stuff in there, but, but there's this line from this dad who, they're paying off schools to get their kids into college, right? And, and this, this guy's to Yale, and now it's my, my youngest boy's time. And they're like, well, yeah, but he, like, but he didn't earn that. And he says, well whatever it will take. <laughs> Who do I have to, what are we doing here? And the, the youngest boy might be thinking, it's my time. Because look, dad, an older brother, and surely let me in as if he has something to do with it. But it's the dad who's writing the checks. It has nothing to do with the boy. God says here, she will find the truth that I have always been the one providing for her. It's not herself. It's not her other lovers. I'll take all those things away. I'll reveal and I'll expose all the grain and wine and oil and gold and silver. There's, there's no rescue. I'm ending her new moons and Sabbaths and feasts and jewelry. All those offerings to false gods, I will block. I will take away. I will expose. I will stop. I will ruin. I will punish. I'll give her what she thinks she wants. And that's life apart from me. Here's what he's saying. I'll sign the papers. And it's so relatable. Gosh, I have three sermons worth of stuff to say and I'll edit real quickly, right? It's so relatable because we assume health and we assume opportunity and we assume that we live at such a time as this, the easiest time that, that humans have ever lived on the planet. And we think that we're entitled to all sorts of things. And we think that this world or, or, or Mother Nature or uh, our work ethic or, look, I, and I say health because it's the one thing, and some of you know it so well and painfully, that you think you're on top of the world and you've earned everything that you got. And, and one fall, one bad test result, one diagnosis, one clump of cells going rogue. And all that you thought you were in control of, you're in control of nothing. And God's saying, it's all from me. And that's why he already set them up and he says, the bow can't save you. 
Judah, it's not protecting you. Israel, I will break your bow. There's nothing in your hands that can stop you from my judgment. And my judgment is, is merely this, giving you what you think you want. And that's life without me. And the contrast to all of that is, and the contrast for those who are in Christ is we get to embrace provision with extreme gratitude. So those who are in Christ should be the most grateful people on the planet because we've been given everything and we've deserved none of it. And that's, that's true in the practical. James says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And, and all throughout the scripture, we see that everything is the Lord's. We're merely stewarding it. We need to consider what we have. Make a list if you're that tight. Man, I just want to write down the things that I have. And then consider where it came from. And, and, and when we do that, we get to consider all that we have as grace. And we see Jesus, the one who we knit our life to, the, one, the foundation of a life that's, that's built on Jesus, he was the Lord himself. And he came and he came... He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He laid down his life and he gave up his riches to give the undeserving, that's us, life. Life abundantly. Life to, to the highest fullness that, that anyone can possibly have. And he did that to invite us into the riches of his forever home with God and his people. That, that's the life that ours is knit to. If that doesn't stir in us, that we deserve the cross. We deserve us to be on the cross. We deserve the judgment that God blasts Israel with. And we get eternal life, forgiveness of sin, and peace with God, and all his riches forever. And the beauty of all that is, is as we respond to that, God doesn't demand that we live life as debtors. Oh God, you've done so much. I can never, how can I? As if we're just striving to, so we have to do all the good things to pay back God in some way. But we get to live as, as loved, living to love. He has bestowed his love to us and we get to live in response to that. A life in Christ is not to be lived as duty or obligation, but as delight from love. And that leads us to the last thing. The rebel bride is the pursuit of God. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. You can imagine that scene in the movie as well, right? And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt, which is where this marriage started when God established a covenant with these people. He rescued them from the hand of Egypt, and he said, let's do this together. And they said, we will. Will you be our God, and we could be your people? God's reminding them. God rescued from Egypt, and, and Jesus later on came to seek and save. God, he, he came and died uh, to gain back love lost when his bride was at her worst. God is not done with his people because he's committed to his promise. He's committed to his vows. And, and he says, I will draw her near and she will turn just as, as she did in the days of her youth when I delivered her out of Egypt. God has and he will pursue his rebellious bride. And you may think he has turned from you. And you may say, but you don't know the life that I've been living. And I would say, I don't know the life that you've been living. But God surely does. And these promises are true for you. Sure as in the day they were for Israel. Return to your first love. If that's the nature of God, we get to respond towards him, knowing him, quick to forgive, merciful, abounding in love, return to our first love. And I think of the prodigal son who, who took all of his stuff and he was entitled and, and he said, God just, or dad, just give me my inheritance. And he goes away and he spends it on, on prostitutes and all kinds of, of, of things. And he finds himself feeding pigs. 
And he says, what I wouldn't give to eat the, the food of the pigs. And he says, man, I'm going to go home and I'm going to ask dad if he would just let me be a servant in his household. And he walked back and he's like rehearsing his thoughts. Dad, here's what I'm going to say. Dad, I'm sorry. Dad, I'm... And his, and his dad sees him a long way off. Is that my boy? And he runs down the driveway, down the road, and he grabs him up. And he says, Dad, and he says, Son, your home, what once was lost, now is found. Fire up the grill, get his robe, get his family ring. We're going to have a party. Look, when we sin, we separate ourselves, we find ourselves full of shame and guilt. How could God love me? And yet, time and time and time again, this is the God that we see who's quick to forgive if we would just turn back and respond to his wooing love. Band can come up. There's a slide you should maybe take a picture of or something. We'll revisit this illustration in time, but, but here's the last thing I want to leave you with today. The way we get to live, I mean, our life gets to be a, a sermon. And it doesn't matter what you know about homiletics. <laughs> but you get to live your life as an illustration to the love that this God has for you. We get to do that for ourselves when we look in the mirror. For those that are around us, neighbor, enemy. We get to do that where we can respond Reflection questions, pray at that bench, pray at that tree, pray back there, pray right where you are. We get to respond to the Lord. And if you are in Christ and you've trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, we get to respond by taking communion. It's just bread and juice. And we do that to remember the body and blood that was spilled for us. If you're not in Christ, that's not for you. But we are, and Jesus would love to invite you to his table. We'd love to chat with you. God, we love you and we thank you. Thank you for your word and for your people. And we know there are people who are wayward. Today, would you, by your spirit and through your word, would you draw them back? Show them your love for them in spite of them. What a God we get to serve. In Jesus' name, amen.